Good morning. Morning. I'm Crystal Jerry. I'll be reading our scripture this morning from Ephesians 2, 1 through 7. And you were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among who we all once lived in, the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of, our, of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love in which he loved us, even when we were death in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace, you have been saved, and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Jesus Christ. Well, amen. Thank you, Crystal, for doing that. Thank you, band, for leading us so well. Uh, it is good, again, just good to be back with you and good to get a chance to stand and preach the good news of the gospel here uh, today. Uh, so open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. That's where we'll be. Actually, if you want to back up to Ephesians chapter 1, we're actually going to start there uh, and kind of get us a ramp into this since we've been gone for so long. Uh, I do want to say I'm thankful for our Advent series we had through Christmas it's always good to kind of take a little break and just remember uh, the fact that Jesus came and what that really means to us and his coming and becoming like one of us. Uh, I'm thankful for Pastor Blake that gave us a charge for the new year in the first Sunday of our new year. And then I'm very thankful for Larry McBee uh, uh, for preaching last week and for the, his many years of service to the Lord. Larry McBee, where are you? Right back in the middle. Raise your hand right there. Raise your hand. Wave it a little bit so people can see it. There he is. There you go. Calm down. Uh, uh, but I'm thankful for uh, he getting a chance to share how you and we as a church are partnering with him, um, how, uh, and honestly, how his, I just want you to remember what a beautiful life that Larry's is. I, I give Larry a lot of grief, uh, deservedly so, uh, but I am just so thankful for him and the life that he has lived, the exemplary life that he has lived, um, uh, a life well lived for Jesus. No fanfare, no bright lights, no recognition, um, simply loving people and sharing the gospel. That's how he spent his life. And I'm just thankful for that. There's certainly a, a well done, good and faithful servant waiting for you. And so uh, I'm thankful for what you do. Thankful for the life you live. Thanks for letting us watch you do it. Uh, back uh, to chapter one, I just want to hit some highlights to kind of, ramp, again, ramp us into where we are. Verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. That's a good start. In love, uh, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Christ Jesus according to the purpose of his will. Verse 7, in him we have the redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Verse 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Verse 13, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit 
who is the guarantee of our inheritance. And then we pick up in verse 15, and I'm going to read that through the rest of the chapter to ramp us in to where we are today. For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for all of you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. All right, that's where we got to. And then we get to chapter 2, which is probably one of the most pivotal writings in all of the apostolic writings, okay? Um, it's, it deals with the question of our sinful nature and explains human corruption and how deep human corruption actually is, uh, and probably with maybe some exceptions in Romans, uh, it probably may go a little bit deeper. I think Ephesians deals with this probably more so than any other place in the Bible, that we're totally dependent upon the grace of God and the work of the Holy Spirit to bring about spiritual life. We don't muster this up on our own, but we're totally dependent on the Spirit of God for the spiritual life that actually God is the one who calls us to live. Now, there's this big controversy that goes on between uh, some theologians in the past, Augustinianism and Pelagian. They were some, some theologians who wrote a lot of this theological treatise through the uh, past you know, hundreds of years. And, and so there's this big debate that kind of goes on between those camps of people in their theology. Most of it kind of centers around um, what kind of nature does a fallen man actually have and what ability does a fallen man have to actually respond to the gospel. That's really kind of where all those kind of different theological realms kind of find themselves. If a person is unregenerate or not, and how does he have the capacity to respond if he's unregenerate? If he's not saved, if he's outside the household of faith, what type of response can you actually respond to the gospel? And that's where these different thoughts come in. Does it take a work of the Holy Spirit to cause you to do that? Can a man incline his own self to actually choose God and whenever he wants to? Classical Reformed theology insists that a man is so fallen in his state that there is no inclination, there is no bent toward things of God, and that he would never respond to the gospel unless God himself actually awakens him to the gospel. That the Holy Spirit has to be the one to awaken someone to the gospel before they will ever respond because there is no responding unless a heart is regenerated first. And so those are kind of the different thoughts, the different camps. That's a big, obviously, very wide overview. But that kind of gets us, we're getting to the heart of that here 
in the gospel or in this letter to the Paul of the Ephesians. So let's see again what this text had to say. I'll read it again. Um, what was read to us already, verse one, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Don't miss what the scripture tells us. We were by nature children of wrath. There's our fa- our fa- one of my favorite verses. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love in which he loved us, even when we were what? Dead in our trespasses, and sin- even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. So uh, the difference in the whole of chapter 1 and and the beginning of chapter 2 is pretty sobering. I mean, it's kind of a stark contrast. Now, there are two words from chapter 1 that really kind of began a lot of the verses. Do you remember what those two words are? Well, I'll tell you. In him, right? That began a lot of those verses. So look back. So go work with me here. If you're new to Refuge, I ask a lot of questions. I'd like for you to respond, okay? Refuge people, help them out, okay? Don't make all our guests answer. Right? (laughs) And so um, Paul wraps up chapter 1. He says, these are the riches that we have in him. These are the riches that come to us because we are in Christ. And and because we get all that is because of the resurrection of Jesus. And Paul then considers what are the implications of Jesus' resurrection power in our life. And honestly, isn't that the big question? Does the resurrection matter? I mean, but does it matter? Does our life Does your life live and respond like it matters? That's the question. Here's how it begins chapter 2. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Hang on. Dead in your trespasses and sins. This is a great reminder for us Christians. What was your state... That, uh, what was your state before you became a Christian? Dead. D-E-D. Dead. Dead in your sins. We sing a song that says this very thing. I haven't sang in a while. And so I thought it was a good... Yeah. <laughs> Alone in my sorrow and dead in my sin. See, that's, what, that's the first line. That's all I'm going to sing. Lost without hope with no place to begin. Your love made a way to let mercy come in. What? When death was arrested and my life began. What did that first line say? You were what? Alone in my sorrow and what? Dead in our sins. Okay, so we're agreeing with the Scripture. Can we all agree with the Scripture? Yes? Who would like to disagree with the Scriptures? Okay, I didn't think anybody would raise their hand today. So again... That is the piece that touches on some of the most controversial places in theology. In what manner and to what extent is a person dead before conversion? 
Must a person be converted before he can believe? Or can there be a work prior to faith that's still short of conversion? So this section of Scripture really focuses in on some theology and the sovereignty of God in all things, especially salvation. What Ephesians chapter 2 brings us to. And Paul addresses this to people who were once dead in their trespasses and sin. And it's important that Paul uses this term dead. He's like, this was a morbid place. This was a lifeless place. This was an unable to respond kind of place. Now, sometimes we hear an analogy when it comes to this, and people try to explain this a little bit away in a different place. Uh, they'll use the following example. Fallen man is so overcome by sin that it's like a person on his deathbed. Has no physical power left to save himself. If he's going to be healed, he can't possibly do it in his own strength. And the only way that he could be made well was for a physician to come and give him the medicine that he possibly needs and restore him. Have you heard it said that way? Have you heard salvation described that way? Probably you have if you've been in church for any amount of time. But the man is so desperately ill that he doesn't even have the power to reach out and take the medicine to actually take the medicine for himself. And so a nurse approaches the man in his, in his state that he's in, in his deathbed, and moves the bottle of medicine close by and puts it in a spoon and brings it up to the man's lips. And then what has to happen? The man, by his own power, must what? Open his mouth, get it in his mouth, and swallow it, right? And he has to... He has to exert some type of effort along the way for actually it to come and actually take place uh, and do any good and any effect in his life. And so the idea that man is actually still good enough to work his way into the kingdom through his own merits, that's not what this is talking about. This is not some meritorious. He's like, you still need much, much help. Can't possibly get there without grace. And so grace is as necessary as the medicine is to this dying man who needs it in his lips. That's one view of theolog one theological view. But a type of cooperation must take place between the patient and the physician. That's what we see in that, right? What happens is that God provides the medicine, brings it to the dying man, but the dying man must cooperate by taking the medicine. Here's the difference we see in, that's kind of called semi-Pelagianism, just FYI. That's a good theological term you can look up if you want to. And Reformed theology. The Reformed theology would tell you that the man is not just simply critically ill. He is what the Scripture says. He is dead. He is dead just like it says in chapter 2, verse 1. The man doesn't even have the power to open his mouth to receive the healing medicine. Rather, the medicine must be taken and injected into the man for him to actually be brought to life. See the difference? Dying man laying there, not taking it on his own, not choosing to take it on his own, but it must be injected in him. That's the difference in those types of theology. Another analogy goes like this. 
A man is cast into the sea who doesn't know how to swim. And he's clearly about to drown. He's kind of come up and he's gone down for one time. And he'd come up and, he, and he's gone down for the second time. And he's barely coming up for the third time. And it just so happens that God is on the ship and throws him a life preserver. And you know where it lands? Right by him. And all the man has to do is reach out his hand and grab that life preserver that's been thrown to him. For the man to be saved, he's got to reach out with his hand and hold on to that life preserver for it to save his life. He must cooperate in this grace that God has presented to him to be saved. That's not the reform view of salvation. And that's not what Paul was saying here in his letter to the church. What did he say in chapter 2, verse 1? What did he say? You are dead in your trespasses and sins. And so the Reformed view would say that the man is not only in the water, but he has gone under the water and he is laying dead on the floor of the ocean, dead. And the only way that he can be saved is if God dives into the water, pulls the corpse up out of the water, and brings it back to life. That's the view that Paul is giving us, is that we are so dead in our sins that we don't even have the ability to respond to him. Spurgeon says this, great theologian Spurgeon says this, Not in a moral sense, not in a mental sense, but in a spiritual sense, humanity is dead, and so the Word of God again and again most positively describes it. We're not dead physically, we're not dead mentally, but we are dead spiritually, and that's the way Spurgeon describes it. Obviously, when we come into the world, we are biologically alive, right? If you're here and you were born, you were biologically alive when you were born as a baby, We have minds that function, hearts that beat. Uh, We have a will that chooses things left and right. We have affections. We have emotions. uh, All all that stuff. We, We have all those things. The problem is that even though we have the ability to choose things, we are dead to the things of God. Dead to all the things of God. We have no desire for the things of God. We follow a different course. We follow it willfully. Paul talks about that in this very text. We follow it freely. We do what we want to do. With respect to spiritual things, we are dead. So even though people are dead in their sins, it's important for us, just like we see all through Scripture, to appeal to all men to believe the gospel. It's what we do every week at Refuge, right? We talk about this regularly. How do, what do we stand up and preach every week at the, at the Refuge? Grace? What else? I mean, we preach the gospel, right? We, we just proclaim the gospel. And all this music we just sang and all the messages that we preach, we preach the gospel and we proclaim the gospel to people who are alive and people who are dead in their sins. Some of you are dead in your sins in this room. Some of you are alive to the gospel in this room. Some of you are confused and angry. Listen, whenever I first heard this, it made me angry. This this theology angered me. It stirred up in my soul, and I didn't like it. But the truth is that salvation is of the Lord. We say that regularly. 
We say that over and over. We sing it. We just sang it in the song, or I sang it, and you agreed with me. Alone in our sorrows and what? Dead in our sins. We don't know who God is going to call. We don't know who God is going to quicken. We don't know what is, who is predestined that the Scripture talked about in Ephesians chapter 1. We don't know who will respond. But we do know that there are some that will respond. We know that God is going to call some, and God is going to awaken some to the gospel. All through the Scriptures, we see this. Hosea 4.11 says, I, God, drew them by the cord of man. God draws people by the proclamation of the gospel. It's what he uses. He not only ordains the ends, he ordains the means by which he accomplishes salvation. It's for you and me to proclaim the gospel to all, say all. He is for you and me to proclaim the gospel to all men and let the Spirit of God move where it will. Okay? Who's angry with me? You don't have to raise your hand. I can feel it. Don't be angry with me. Just be angry with the text. Take it up to God. Let's move on off the word dead, okay? Uh, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And so Paul has the, uh, uh, the idea behind the word trespasses is that we have crossed the line. So it's kind of like this, okay? We've crossed, you ever see a sign like this? What does it mean? Danger, Danger, okay, what? Don't go past that. What? Uh, You're not allowed. You don't belong here. Stay out this, yeah, you might get shot. (laughs) Stay out, this means you, right? You know, don't come past this. So when we think about trespasses, Kind of we've crossed the line from righteousness into sinful ways, okay? So sometimes God puts up some road signs, right? He's like, hey, this is a place where you don't go as a, as a Christian. This is a place where you don't live past this place. He puts up signs and roadblocks and reminds us of this pretty regularly. Don't go there. When Paul included sins, it's kind of places where we've missed the mark, kind of where we've just plowed past it. Anybody ever gone past the sign that says this? You don't have to raise your hand. I know most of you are guilty. I know most of you, so I know most of you are guilty uh, that you've gone past this sign. Eric Eskew has it because he always like follows the rules. Like He is like, nope, don't go past that sign. Go a different way. This is not the way we go. Uh, we'll have to find a different route. I'm like, come on, let's go. You know, um, We don't do what we should do, and we do what we shouldn't do, right? That scripture tells us. Paul talks about that in Romans. That's kind of how we live sometimes. And so trespasses speaks of us as rebels. You know, we don't want to follow the rules. We, we want to do our own way. We want to go our own way. We want to do our own thing. Go where we shouldn't go. And, and sin speaks of us as failures. That's what we're doing. Doing what we should not do. John Stott says, 2-1 could say, before God, we are both rebels and failures. Before God, we are both rebels and failures in our in our dead state, rebels and failures. He goes on, let's, let's keep reading in in uh, next verse, verse 2. In which you once walked, we were dead in our trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working the sons of disobedience, 
among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and in mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So what does this tell us? Verse 2, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, and the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And so at one time, all Christians everywhere were lived in our trespasses and sins. We all did at some point. We were all rebels and failures. At some point, each of you, all of us, lived in that particular state. What the Scripture tells us is where we were in a place before we became a Christian. And some of you, again, still are living in that same state. We lived according to the course of this world, which is orchestrated by who? Yep, come on. Begins with S, ends in Aiton. Yeah, there we go. Here we go. Yeah, so it's orchestrated by this world. He is the prince of the power of this world, right? And so we lived according to that. That's what the Scripture says. I'm not making this up. I'm reading the Scriptures. I'm explaining the Scriptures to you. This is not my opinion. This is what the Scripture says. He is the prince of the power of the air. And he is still at work and alive in those who are rebelling against God, who Paul calls the sons of disobedience. Augustine once said that a man is like a horse and he has one of two riders. Either the horse is ridden by Satan or it is ridden by God. Sadly, nothing is more natural to fallen man than to adopt, to embrace, and to walk according to the ways of this world in direct contrast to the ways of God. The spirit who is influencing non-Christians to be disobedient is obviously a reference to Satan. That's what he tells us. For those of us who are outside of the household of faith, that we are following the, the prince of the power of the air. Some of you still walk in this pathway today. You live according to the course of this world. You're living uh, uh, a life of disobedience to God. A life of disobedience to God because you're still following the prince of the power of the air who is Satan. Why? Because you are dead in your rebellion and sin before God. Paul is also reminding the Ephesians and honestly us today that as Christians, our old self once walked in the same way. But this was the old man. So as Christians, we once did these things. We once walked this way. This was the old man, though, that did these things. He said, you, you once walked this particular way, but now the old man is crucified with Jesus. At your conversion, the old man was to die, and the new man was raised to walk in his life. Remember the things that happened at your baptism? What did they probably say to you? You're buried. What did they say? You're what? Buried with Jesus in baptism unto death. What? Raised to walk in newness of life. Y'all are all Baptists, aren't you? Yeah. I know how that goes. But that's, that's a picture of what that means, that we are raised to walk in newness of life. We're called to something different. Spirit of God lives within us now. We're not following Satan anymore. Okay? Once walked means that life should be different for us. Once walked means that we've been made alive by Jesus, and therefore we're called to live differently. Think about this. Uh, 
a dead man, for lack of a better term, feels comfortable in his coffin. Okay? Just work with me here. All right? Just think, think about that. A dead man feels comfortable in his coffin. I mean, you think, you go to a funeral, and this is morbid, but it's, it's, this is, again, biblical language. A dead man feels comfortable there, just laying there, right? What happens when you close the, close the, uh, the, the top on a coffin? What happens? Nothing, right? But what if you were made alive? It's like a horror movie, right? I mean, I've had some of those dreams before. I've seen probably some of those movies, you know, where you like they, they bury people and they're like, ah, yeah, I can't get out. Uh, but that's the way it would be. A, a dead man would not be, a, I mean, a live man would not be comfortable in a coffin. Someone alive would want to burst out and live and live to, to, to the new life that he had been given. Leave that coffin behind. In the same way, when we're spiritually dead, we can feel comfortable in our trespasses and sins, right? Comfortable in our rebellion. Comfortable in following the ways of the world. But having been made alive, we've been set free from that. How does it feel today if you've been set free from your sin? How does it, I need you to think about this. How does it feel today when you sin? You don't have to answer. Think about it. You just plow through it without any thoughts whatsoever? You just plow on and just continue on in your sin and your rebellion? Then if you do, without any remorse, then you're probably still dead in your sins. There's no feeling in that. If you feel remorse over your sin, that's a good indicator somewhere that probably the Spirit has doing some work in your life. Paul says that we willingly followed the prince of the power of the air while we were dead to Christ. One commentator said this, evil men set him, Satan, up for their sovereign and are wholly at his beck and obedience. Listen, if you're not a Christian, this describes you. You may deny that and you may be like, that's not me, I don't follow Satan. But this is who you are apart from the work of Christ Jesus in your life. You are following the prince of the power of the air. Verse 3 goes on and says this. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And so this is the, the universal condition for all of fallen humanity. People continue to indulge themselves in their sinful desires. And the, and the apostle is not saying that, that, that fallen men lack a will or anything like that. or that it, he, he doesn't have the capacity to choose. The, the problem is that he has no desire for God. Fallen man has no desire for God. Look, look around. Everybody just kind of look around in this place. If you're watching online or wherever we all might be, we were all, say all, we were all the sons of disobedience. Our flesh told the story. We embraced all the lusts and passions of our, flat, of our flesh, both in our body and in our mind. Verse 3 speaks to total depravity of man. It's not that we're as wicked as we could be or, 
or we can probably still think of more things we could possibly do that we've never done that were even more depraved than some things that we've done on our own before. But the reality is, in our depraved state, we never have a positive desire for Jesus. Paul now is reminding the Ephesians that you've been delivered from this. You've been delivered from that state of mind. You've been delivered from that feeling, from that way of thinking, from that way of following the prince of the power of the air. You ever think about what your life was like before you became a Christian? You ever think back and go, this was the life I lived? I think about it all regularly. You know, back in the college days, man, I was big fun and 100 miles an hour just doing whatever. I think about those days. And I think about those, those weren't big fun. I mean, we had a good times. Man, those, there was nothing fulfilling about that. There was nothing fulfilling. It was just chasing after the next thing, trying to find something else to just fill me up. And it was a, a, rat, a constant rat race of something that was never fulfilling. Desires that raised in our bodies, our minds. Paul's taking us back to say, this is from where you once came. Many of us can probably think about that ourselves. And so he wraps this up, this verse, by saying, just by being born, we were born children of wrath, under the control of the world, under the control of the world, the flesh, and the devil. And that was our sinful nature. Now, unfortunately, under the kind of humanism that's kind of crept into churches and our society and everything like that, uh, many times people will say that people are born into this world with no innate uh, goodness or badness, okay? They were born in something that were all just kind of born neutral. No biases, no anything at all like that. And so humans kind of go through this state of probation, And so we kind of got a decision about where we're going to go, good or bad. We're all going to choose if we're going to be good or if we're going to be bad. But think about that. Just just, just rationally think about that for a moment. If that were the case, how many people are in the world? How many? Seven billion? Is that close? Wouldn't there be, if this was true, that we were kind of born neutral and kind of had a decision to go one way or the other, Wouldn't there be some pockets of people along the way that just got it right? Half the people? 30% of the people. 15% of the people. How much is 15% of 7 billion? I have no idea. It's just a lot. Okay? That's a lot. Wouldn't there be, how much is that? Somebody... 1.4 1.4 billion. Wouldn't there be 1.4 billion people-ish, give or take, you know, a couple hundred thousand that got it right if that was our case? Yes? 2%. What's 2% of 7 billion? I thought Ken was using his calculator. He's sending a text. (laughs) Still a lot, okay? 
Wouldn't there be just some pockets of people that just got it right? No such civilization's ever been found. No one's ever been found that whenever people grow up to be adults, they always do everything right and everything right from the beginning, right? There's just never been that. There's never been anybody that always does everything right without any sin. We are born in opposition to God. Your little six-pound, 12-ounce baby boy is born with a sinful nature. We're exposed to the wrath of God, and honestly, justly so. I know it's not a popular thing to say that we are children of wrath. Today, people like to think that we're children of God, and yes, he is our common creator. We are born with this sinful nature, born with an enraged, sinful nature within us. Do you feel this, church? Does it not feel good? I can see the looks on some of your faces. It feels bad. It, it kind of, when I talk about this, honestly, I don't like it because it feels so dirty. And it feels uh, like I, I'm, I don't have worth and value when I think about me in that place. The truth behind it is, is that even in our deep sin, God still loved us. And that's where Paul continues to talk about, and we finally get to verse 4, okay? I'm not leaving you here at verse 3. Verse 4 says this, but God, whoo, yeah, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love in which he loved us. Now, if you are a circler or a writer or a highlighter or whatever, you need to do that with but God in your Bible, Okay? This is the place that you need to go back to. Highlight that verse, underline it, circle but God. This is like one of those turning point places because verses one through three have not been a pleasant beginning to preach. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love in which he loved us, because we are a people with an enraged, sinful nature and are spiritually dead, Paul explains God's reasoning for reconciling man to himself. And the reasons are found in God. The reasons are his rich mercy and his abundant grace. He's not saving us because you're a good dude. He's not saving us because you're a kind lady. Okay? That's not why. But it's because of his rich mercy and because of his kindness and his grace. Each one of us was corrupt in our sins and our practices. We possess nothing towards God. And so it took not only mercy, but how much? Much mercy and grace to call us to himself. Look at the end of verse 4. Paul says, the great love in which God loves us, that we were, that he extended to you and me even while we were unlovely. Think about, if you're a Christian, think about whenever you were converted, whenever the Spirit awakened you to the gospel. You were probably in an unlovely state at the time. We were children of wrath. Every reason for God's mercy is found not in us, not in our goodness, not because we've turned to him, but because he chose to awaken us to the gospel. We gave him no reason to love us. Yet in the greatness of his love, he chose to love us anyway. The great secret of the Christian life is that this very fact, that God loves the unlovable. 
God loves the unlovable. I take great comfort in that. That in my most unlovely state, I remember when I became a Christian. I remember. Listen, we sit and listen to sermons week after week. We listen to people preach week after week. We hear the gospel proclaimed week after week. And some people, we just sit there and we decline it and we don't listen and we disregard it and we push it away and we don't believe it's true. We say there's no way that can be true. And we disregard God at every turn, right? We've all done it before at some point in our life. And at some point, what happened? It was like, pow! You're like, oh my goodness, this makes sense. You know what happened? You didn't just decide that on your own. What happened? You got awakened to the gospel. Who woke you up? Yeah, the Holy Spirit woke you up. The Holy Spirit quickened you and awakened you and gave you faith to believe. You're like, oh my goodness, this is true. And you responded that way. That's how that works. He goes on to say this in verse 5. My great, uh, even when we were dead in our trespasses, there it is again, dead in our trespasses, made, he made us alive with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches, 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 riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Look, he says that three different times in those last three verses that all of this is in Christ Jesus. Look at verse five. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. If you have any questions about this happening from God, verse five explains it even more. If you want to understand Reformed theology, or I say biblical theology, read that verse a thousand times. It is the thematic passage of the gospel, okay? This is the thematic passage of the gospel, that even when we were dead in our trespasses, God, that's who it's about, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Grace is a merit not of our own, or something that happens not on our own, that is given to us freely by someone else. The grace that brings us life, comes at the very time that we are dead in our sins and trespasses. It is an act of God. If you're a Christian, think about why are you a Christian? Because you're better than other people? Because you're more intelligent? Because you figured it all out? Because you have something in which to boast? No. The New Testament tells us that we have nothing in which to boast that we were a debtor who could not pay our sin debt that was owed. And while we were dead in our trespasses and sins, it was God who made us alive from spiritual death. You could have no more done that yourself than Lazarus could have raised him on self from the dead. So when we were dead in our sins, God didn't wait till we were lovable. When we had anything towards him, his grace is undeserving, remember, toward the undeserving. I'm going to tell you, here, here, I'm going to listen, church. I'm going to give you the requirements of what it means to be saved, okay? Listen, that's what it means. This what, these are the requirements for you to be saved. This is what you've got to have. One, you first got to be dead in your sins, the end of yourself. 
the end of your trying to pull yourself up by your bootstraps, the end of trying to do better than worse, the end of trying to go, I'll make some meritorious things on my own. That's not what it means to be saved. The first thing you've got to do is come to the end of yourself. Dead in every attempt to justify yourself before God. You can do nothing to save yourself. You bring nothing to the table except the sin that needs to be forgiven and repentance that comes with it, and faith that is even given to you by God. What does he do to those who are dead in their sins? (laughs) He makes us alive together in Christ Jesus. That's what the scripture says. He makes us alive in Christ Jesus. He's shared in a death like ours, so we can share in a life like his. Our old man is crucified And we are now new creations in Christ Jesus. The old things are passed away. All things have become new. That's what all this means. Paul wraps this up by the last piece of verse 5 by saying, by grace you have been saved. Paul was, was compelled to add that all this is a work of grace. All this is a work of God. Say in no way, say no way. In no way does it involve any merit of yours. Your salvation from spiritual death is God's work done for the undeserving. Now what else has God done? It says this in verse 6, He's raised us up with Him, seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And now this, this verse does not say that we are seated in heavenly places with Christ. It says that we're seated in heavenly places in Christ, okay? So we are in Christ. So positionally, we are in Christ, which means we have a right to the kingdom. Amen? Yeah? And we are in Christ Jesus means that we are in fellowship with the King of Kings. Then verse 7 says that so that by the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. We'll be saved. We'll continue to be saved forever and ever and ever. So what now? What do we do with this text? What do you do with it that's kind of just wrestling with you? This text that is kind of uh, bringing some consternation to you? This text that is kind of like stirring in you? What do you do with this now? Uh, Spurgeon says this, uh, here's what he says. So it is with the grace of God, he has as much grace as you want. He has as much grace as you want. And he had a great more deal than that. The Lord has as much grace as a whole universe will require, but he has vastly more. He overflows all the demands that can ever be made on the grace of God will never impoverish him or ever diminish his story of mercy. There will remain an incalculable precious mind of mercy as full as when he first began to bless the sons of men. As much grace as you need, you can have. As much grace as you think it's going to need to pick you up out of the miry pit, he has for you. As much as grace as you think you need to deliver you from whatever sin you have immersed yourself in, he will give to you. And as much grace as you think you possibly need to raise a dead man to life, he has for you. I want you to experience God's grace. I want you to know Jesus. Last thing that Spurgeon says, and I'll be closed. The first line between your soul and Christ 
is not your goodness, but your badness. Not your merit, but your misery. Not your standing, but your failing. Not your riches, but your need. Some of you here today know you need something. I would say you need someone. You need to repent, which means to turn away from your sin, confess your sin to God, declare that you need His righteousness because you have none, and believe the gospel. The gospel says that Jesus came and lived the life you cannot live. He died the death that you deserve, all of us deserve to die, and that God raised Him from the dead three days later, and He is ever interceding on your behalf at the right hand of God. Without the shedding of Jesus' precious blood, there would be no forgiveness of any of our sins. And he offers forgiveness to you today fully. Some of your family and friends need to hear this. For many of them are dead in their trespasses and sins. Will you be the one to share that with them? Today. Right now. Some of you need to come to Jesus. We'll invite you to do that very thing. Let's pray.